Hello everyone, today is May 9th, and if it's Sunday, then this is The Delve. Two weeks ago, we finally got the results of the 2020 census. It's a little later than it usually is, but we'll dive into that in just a minute. The census is the most important civic event in America, and it happens every 10 years. The census decides how $675 billion is allocated across the country. This money supports things like healthcare and education based on local populations. The census also decides how many congressional seats and electoral college votes each state has. The bigger the population, the more House representatives and the more electoral votes for president. Because of this, the census can have a large impact on which states gain and lose political power. Because of the 2020 census data, many states and regions gained and lost seats in the House. The Sun Belt picked up four additional seats, while six states in the Northeast and Midwest each lost one. New York, Rhode Island, and Alabama lost fewer seats than predicted. Well, Arizona, Texas, and Florida gained fewer seats than expected. The moral of the story is that the South and West continue to grow in both population and political power. Now, on to the reason behind why the census was late at all. As we all know, this has everything to do with former President Donald Trump and his attempt to constantly disregard the Constitution. Because of the pandemic and how it affected in-person door knocking by census workers, the Census Bureau asked for a 120-day extension on counting citizens back in April 2020. Trump publicly supported this plan during a press conference. The borough said that the longer census schedule would help them fulfill the constitutional requirement of a complete and accurate census. This is important because of how much the census affects the distribution of funding and power across the U.S., The House passed an extension for census reporting deadlines within the first coronavirus relief bill. However, on July 21st, 2020, the story changed. Trump issued a memo calling for unauthorized immigrants to be excluded from the census numbers used to reallocate House seats. Trump officials wanted to use the census to directly ask the citizenship status of every person living in every household in in the country for the first time in U.S. history. This would skew results because, one, people would probably be scared to admit they weren't naturalized U.S. citizens, and two, the census has always counted every person, not every citizen, every person in the U.S. This is a ridiculous ask because the Constitution literally spells out that all persons who reside in the states are supposed to be counted, not just citizens not just voters. Federal law calls for the whole number of persons living in each state and the tabulation of the whole population to be used when reapportioning House seats and electoral votes. This would take political representation away from those residents and the communities where they live. This demand from Trump made him the first official to attempt to break a 230-year precedent of no person being left out of the census because of their immigration status. This literally has not happened since 1790. 
and Trump thought he should go against the Constitution. Earlier in the same week Trump issued his controversial non-constitutional memo, the White House asked Congress for $1 billion to conduct a timely census. Career officials at the borough began circulating a document that warns that stopping the extended schedule will result in a census that is of unacceptable quality and risk the perception of politically manipulated results. So while Trump was originally supportive of an extended schedule for the census, he then began urging the census borough to get back on their original pre-pandemic schedule. Tim Olson, field director for the borough, responded by saying that any thinking person who would believe we can deliver apportionment by December 31st is either, and I'm, I'm still quoting here, a mental deficiency or a political motivation. In late July, the borough was directed to come up with a plan to accelerate census operations in order to meet the December 31st reporting deadline. The borough wasn't super happy about this. Krista Jones, chief of staff in the borough's office of the director, urged including language in the slide deck to make clear that the borough was directed to do that. She says, this is not our idea and we shouldn't have to own it. On August 3rd, 2020, the borough announced that all counting efforts would end a month early on September 30th, and the time for processing the count's results will also be cut short. On the same day, an internal borough analysis warned that serious errors discovered in the data may not be fixed due to lack of time to research and understand the root cause. In January of this year, Trump appointed director of the U.S. Census Bureau stepped down after a week of whistleblower complaints about his role in attempting to rush out an incomplete data report about non-citizens. All of the above are reasons why we're just getting the census data now. <laughs> the main reason is sketchy behavior by former President Trump. Another Trump-related sketchy behavior... <laughs> It's been barely four months since Trump has left office. It's also been several months since he averted his second impeachment. Out of office and without the protections of the presidency, Trump is now facing multiple criminal investigations, civil state inquiries, and defamation lawsuits by two women accusing him of sexual assault. At present, Trump is battling 29 lawsuits. The man has a lot on his plate. But let's put 28... Of those lawsuits aside, and I know, I know, 28 is a lot of lawsuits to put aside, but for this segment, uh, I want to focus on what is perhaps the most dangerous legal storm that could imperil Trump's freedom. In New York, Trump faces a criminal investigation led by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They're looking into whether the Trump Organization violated state laws. These include insurance fraud, tax fraud, and other schemes to fraud. The breadth of the investigation is fairly broad, with prosecutors also examining whether the Trump Organization misled financial institutions when applying for loans or wrongfully took deductions on fees paid to consultants. In February, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance scored a huge victory when the Supreme Court allowed him to receive Trump's tax returns. And then this story gets more interesting because it all kind of centers around a man whom you may not have ever heard of, Alan Weisselberg. Who is Alan Weisselberg? Well, I'm glad you've asked. Weisselberg is the chief financial officer for the Trump Organization. He handles everything from Trump household expenses to Trump's taxes. Yeah, that fun set of numbers. 
While in his 70s now, he's worked for the Trump family his entire adult life. And he's sad to know where the financial bodies are buried. Eek. Last month in April, Weisselberg's former daughter-in-law, Jennifer Weisselberg, turned over a huge chunk of documents to the district attorney's office. And now she's speaking out. NBC News investigative correspondent Tom Winter spoke exclusively with Weisselberg's former daughter-in-law, who's offering insight into Trump's top money man, his family, and the ongoing investigation. For 14 years until 2018, Jennifer Weisselberg was married to a son of Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg. Alan Weisselberg is defined by what Donald thinks about him, by about saving him money regardless, every day, proving his worth by doing that creatively. What do you think he could tell investigators? Everything they would ask. Do you think he could be the ultimate tour guide into the Trump orbit? Yes. She says she gained her own insights into the Trump orbit before her marriage to Barry Weisselberg ended in a bitter divorce. From visiting Trump's signature golf courses to her front row seat at the 2016 presidential inaugural, she says the Weisselberg family has been loyal to Donald Trump and he's been good to them. Her ex-husband, Barry, managing Trump's ice rinks in New York's Central Park. And she believed that in 2004, Trump and Melania gave them a big wedding gift, their own apartment overlooking the park. So you thought that the apartment you were living in was a gift. This is a congratulations. I wrote them a thank you note. And all along, it was just a corporate Trump organization apartment. I didn't understand these things. I was a ballet dancer. Come on. In reality, Trump didn't give them the apartment. He let them live there rent-free, paying only for utilities, an arrangement that could raise legal and tax questions about how the Weisselbergs and the Trump Organization accounted for it. When the arrangement was reported last fall, it caught the attention of Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance's office. The prosecutor, who went all the way to the Supreme Court and got Trump's tax returns, now in the thick of a grand jury investigation. How many times have you specifically talked with the Manhattan District Attorney's office? Multiple times. Okay. And it's not over. The DA is now on a mission to flip Weisselberg and provide testimony against Trump. Weisselberg has been directly involved in everything from possible payments to the president's former alleged mistresses to the scandal-plagued Trump Foundation to help him prepare Trump's tax returns. To date, prosecutors in this case have not formally accused Weisselberg or Trump of wrongdoing. We'll continue to watch this space. Thank you for tuning in. This is The Delve, and uh, I'll see you next Sunday.